outline for the message today. Anyone need one? You slip your hand up. Got a few hands up. And they're in the foyer there. And uh, Nehemiah chapter number 10. Nehemiah chapter number 10. The message this morning. And I say things like this often. It's going to be a unique kind of message. It's not my typical three points and different things. But most of the time, my sermons aren't very typical anyways. And so I don't know what a typical message truly is. So if you need a copy of the outline, if you slip your hand up, we'll get you a copy. And we'll get to the Word of God here today. Nehemiah chapter number 10. I'm in Job, so I'm not quite there yet. Nehemiah chapter number 10. If you notice the first 27 verses, there's just a bunch of names listed right here. And so... I would read you all those names and show you how well I can articulate the biblical names here, but I'm not going to do that this morning, just to save a little bit of time. I should have Ryan read all these for us, right? Ryan, our, uh, our school, he runs our um, older elementary and high school and junior high, and he, he can read these names pretty well, and so I wouldn't do that to you. Well, I would do that to you, but I'm not going to do that this morning. We're going to get to the message here in just a moment. But I want to tell you the story of, that I heard. I heard about a man who bought a parrot. It was a, view, a beautiful parrot, but this parrot had a really bad mouth. He could swear for five minutes straight without repeating himself. And the man who bought this bird, was high, he was very embarrassed because every time he had people over to his house, this bird would talk really bad. And he was very embarrassed by the bird. He tried to appeal to the bird by asking him to clean up his language. The parrot promised to change, but nothing ever happened. But what happened was the parrot kept getting worse and worse, and his language kept getting even worse. The parrot got more angry, and it just got worse from there. One day, the guy got really mad and locked the parrot in the kitchen cabinet. I'm not advocating bird abuse, okay? I'm just telling you the story this morning. That really aggravated the bird, and he started clawing and scratching and making all kinds of racket. When the guy finally let him out, the parrot let loose with a stream of swear words that made a man blood, that made the man blush. At this point, the man was so ticked off with his parrot that he put him in the freezer. For the first few seconds, the bird squawked and screamed, thrashed around, and then was silent. At first, the guy just waited. But then he started to wonder if the bird was hurt. After a couple of minutes of not hearing anything, he was so worried that he opened the freezer door. And the bird calmly climbed out of, onto the man's outstretched arm and said, I'm really sorry about all the trouble I've been causing you and giving you. I make a solemn promise and vow to clean up my language from now on. The man was astounded. He couldn't believe the transformation that had come over the parrot as a result of being in the freezer for only a couple of minutes. The parrot then turned to the man and said, I have just one question. What did the chicken do? The frozen chicken in the freezer. Some of you, that was pretty good, I think. And if you didn't, this is what's going to happen for some of you. This afternoon, you're going to get home, and you're like, oh, that was funny. Pastor does have a sense of humor. No, you're just a little slow on it, okay? Well, I, first service got it better, or they just didn't get it, and they just laughed for sympathy for me. I don't know. But 
doesn't that what we do a lot of times? We make promises, and we seldom keep our promises. The person said, I'll clean up my language, and didn't. How many times do we look to God and be like, God, I'm going to do better? And then we don't. Passage of Scripture we see before our eyes today, we look at chapter number 9 and look at verse 38. The Bible says, and because all of this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. The people of God, the children of Israel, made a covenant to God. What you have in chapter number 10 from verse 1 through verse 27 is the names of all those who sealed the covenant. Verse 29 through the end of the chapter goes into detail about what they covenanted to do or the promises or the vows that they made to God. And this morning as we dive into the message, we're going to learn about four vows that the people made. The people of God, you think about this, several first chapters in Nehemiah, Nehemiah concentrated on building the wall. The wall got built, he turned from his concentration on building a wall, he turned to building people and getting people the tools they needed to be successful. It all began with the Word of God. The Word of God is key and paramount in the Christian life. A Christian who has nothing to do with the Word of God is a Christian that will not go far in the Christian life. The Word of God is so important to the Christian life. We see what happened. They started reading the Word of God. And as they read it, they had those who helped the people understand the Word of God. They worshiped God together. They um, confessed their sins before God, and then they made commitments or they made vows or promises to God moving forward. Similar to what a church service is like. The people of God get together. We sing praise to our God. We hear the Word of God read and preached and then we have a, an invitation time, a time for decisions to be made. That's where the biblical example of this comes from, is Nehemiah here. Some people think an invitation and making decisions and all that, that's some man-made tradition. No, it comes from Nehemiah here. That's where it comes from. And may I remind you, and may we keep in the forefront of our minds as Victory Baptist Church, we don't need to be doing anything out of tradition. We need to be doing what we do based on the Word of God. Traditions are good. A lot of us have traditions that we love and that we hold dear to our hearts. But in church, tradition can't trump Bible. Bible must be the forefront of everything that we do. We get to this passage of Scripture this morning, and we see all these names of all these people who sealed and signed this covenant they made with God. And I want to show you some verses about what the Bible says about covenant making and promises to God. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 30, verse number 2, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse number 4, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he that hath, for he hath no pleasure in fools, pay that which thou vowed. And you know, some people's way to get around is, you know what? I just won't tell God I'll do anything and I don't have to worry about it. I don't think that's a great way to live either. When the Word of God convicts our hearts, 
There's got to be decisions and things that we make to God. That's what we see in this passage. We'll talk more about that here in just a few minutes. Some people, and do you know what we see over and over again in the Bible? Vows or covenants were made, and people broke those covenants. A great example of that. The children of Israel, remember the Lord gave them the Ten, the ten Commandments in Exodus chapter number 20. The people vowed that God would be their God and they would follow him. A few short chapters later, Moses is still up on the mount with God, and what do the people do? They break their vow and worship a golden calf. Peter, for an example, remember how the Lord said that, Peter, you're going to deny me. And what did Peter say in Mark 14? He said, although all shall be offended, yet will I not. What did Peter do? Verse 71 of the same chapter. But he began to curse and to swear, much like that parrot, saying, I know, this, I know not this man of whom ye speak. He didn't keep his word. We are known to not keep our word. How many times, you think to yourself this morning, how many times did you tell God, God, I'm going to do this, and then you didn't do it? How many times in the past years did I tell myself, Brian, you're going to lose some weight. You're going to quit drinking Dr. Pepper. It's a good lofty goal, right? And uh, then I would go back to Dr. Pepper. You know, some people it's alcohol, some people it's Dr. Pepper. I'm glad it's Dr. Pepper, not alcohol for me. We say things or, you know, I remember as a teenager, I told, you know, we go to teen camp or something and I'd make a decision. I'm going to do a better job of obeying my parents. That would be something I would say at camp. And then I'd get home. And you would know that God or someone would test me about that. And then I would fail at that right away. How many of you at one time or another have told God I'm going to do something and then you failed at it? Would you raise your hand? I think all of us would agree with that statement right there. We all do. So what do you do? Do you just not say, all right, God, I'm just not going to promise to do anything. And if, and if I do it, that's as wonderful, right? I think vows are a good thing and promises are good. You say, why? They help us with focus. When you make a vow you're saying that you're going to do something specifically. Maybe God speaks to your heart through the word of God or whatever the case may be, and maybe you say, Lord, I'm going to witness more. I think that's a good commitment from, a pe from the people of God. Or, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible more. I think that's a good thing to say. I think it's good to have those goals or commitments. Not only is it good for our focus, but it's also good because it allows us to, to express our love. What do you do at a wedding altar? Make vows to one another. Covenant to one another. With God, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live more for you. I'm going to do my best. You're going to fail. God knows that. But doing these things and making, making some commitments to God, vows, however you want to word it, are not a bad thing. Having said all of that, and as we dive in this morning, I want you to think about this. Well, it may be helpful to make a vow or an oath to God today, something you need to remember. We don't succeed as Christians because we make promises to God. That's not how you succeed in the Christian life. We succeed because we believe the promise of God and act upon His promise. 
Don't forget that. As we dive in today, I want you to be helped. I want you to see several things. And as I said, this message is going to be a little different this morning, but that's okay. You have a different pastor, so it's okay. Not always normal. I try to be normal, but there's not normal people sitting in the, in the chairs either. So we blend well together. It's a good mixture between all of us. I want to give you the four vows that the children of Israel made to God. Number one, they made a vow in submission to God's word. They made a vow to submit to God's word. As a result of hearing the word of God, Israelites made four decisions. The first one's found in verse 29 of our text. So Nehemiah 10, verse 29, they claved to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in the law of God, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe to do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. The people of God said, we're going to submit ourselves to God's word. What God's word says, we're going to do our very best to live it and to fulfill it. May I just tell you this morning, if a vow that all God's people should make, this would be the vow. We're going to submit to God's word. When God's word says it, we're going to do what it says. What you're going to see in a few minutes is this was the first vow, but this was the most important vow. Because this vow of submitting to God's word is what led to the other three decisions that they made because it was found in the scriptures and things that they should have already been doing. And so when we look at this and as we dive in this morning, the first vow that they made, they were in submission to the word of God. And may I just remind you today, they were serious in their desire to, to put themselves and do everything they could that the Bible said. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army today, you think a lot of thrift stores and things like that. And the Salvation Army really does not mirror what it used to hardly at all. There were a lot of churches and a lot of people were helped by the Salvation Army. And there's still people helped today, but it's nothing like what it was. William Booth was a godly man that started the Salvation Army. And William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, was once asked what his secret was to his incredible ministry. And this way he said, God has had all that there was of me. There have been many men with greater brains than I, but from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with me and them, on that day I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth that there was. Some of the greatest men and women ever used of God, all of them, there's one key secret, they gave themselves the God and his word. You see what we need in 2020 today? We just need Christians that will submit to this book. That's what we need. That will live and submit to the word of God. In Nehemiah 10 here, the people are saying they're so serious about submitting to God and his word. They even said, look what it says there in verse, they claimed to their brother and their nobles and entered into a curse and into an oath. They were willing for the curses of God to fall on them if they didn't obey what God told them to do. That's a pretty serious vow that they made. How many of us would make a vow like that? God, you can curse me if I don't follow your word. We'd all be thinking, I don't know if I want to make that vow to God. God takes that pretty serious and uh, be careful. But Christian, may I just tell you this morning, the first vow that they made was submission to God's word. 
And that's the ground level for all of us. Every Christian should at least make this vow to God. God, I'm going to submit myself to your word. Now, what we see is the three other vows they make all came because they submitted themselves to God's word. So number one, we see submission to God's word. Number two, we see separation from the world. Separation from the world. After they submit themselves to God, we see the believers made a second vow. Look at the end of verse number, look at verse number 28. And we'll just read 28 and verse 30. It says, And the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the porters, the singers, the Nethanims, and all they that had separated themselves from the people of the lands unto the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone having understanding and ha- having knowledge and having understanding, skip to verse 30, and that, and that we would not give our daughters unto the people of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. So we see submission to the word of God, and then we see separation from the world. What we see in these verses, though, what they says, we're not going to give our daughters in marriage to the heathen of the land here. And you say, well, why? You think about it. Why would that be important? Because God had told them not to. You remember when Israel went into the promised land? God told them to drive out all the inhabitants, right? Was that because God didn't like everyone else? No, God so loved the world, he gave his son. God loves everyone. He came to die for everyone. Say, why didn't God want the Canaanites in the land? Because God knew that if the Canaanites stayed in the land, that the children of Israel would end up being just like the Canaanites. And what did Israel do? They offered their children to Molech. They did all the things that the Canaanites did. Why? Because they didn't separate from those things. And so the people, after submitting to the word of God, the first vow they make is, God, we're not going to let our daughters marry their their sons, and we're not going to let them mix together, because what happens is, when that takes place, and may I just tell you, this was not them being racist or racial or anything like that. It wasn't them saying, we're better than everybody else. This had nothing to do with that. What I want you to understand is this, it had to do with how they worship God. Because you think back to Solomon, the wisest man, the Bible says in the Bible, right? How, how many wives did he have over 700? That's not very wise in my eyes. I've got one and I can't, ha- I mean, I, and I love my one and I couldn't, I couldn't handle more than one. Or maybe that's the key, 700 one time every two years, you got to see them. Maybe that's how he kept them all happy. I don't know. I don't know what it was. But the wisest man in all the Bible, but what the Bible tells us is, and he loved God. He did. God blessed him for a long time in his life. But what happened? Those ladies turned his heart from God. That's why he wasn't supposed to marry the ones that he did. And that's why God was telling, and why the people were like, We won't give our daughters over to the heathen because of worshiping God properly. And declaring this, and as we look at this, you got to understand that wrong relationships can hinder us in our growth for the Lord. Wrong relationships can mess up our witness. 
say, well, why, why is it so disastrous? Why is it so important that they didn't marry the heathen? Well, there's kind of two reasons. The first one is the Bible gave a biblical warning about this. Joshua 23, verse number 13. But, and this was talking about marrying and being unequally yoked. It said, but they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. That's pretty powerful language right there, isn't it? And there was a biblical warning about, hey, be careful. Hey, they're gods, they're idols. You could worship them. It's, it's a trap. And then we see that you got to understand something. The second thing that we see is there was an abundant historical evidence that unequally yoked marriages led to a decline in Israel's spiritual and moral lives. Nehemiah 13, we'll be there in a couple of weeks, verse 26. You know something? The people didn't keep their vow, did they? Because in chapter 13, they had married the heathen of the land. Look at what Nehemiah, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. And that's why it's so important as we look at this here, we got to understand something in our own lives and apply it to ourselves. We are more influenced by other people than we care to admit. It's just a part of life. And we read these verses and things, mixed marriages are very dangerous. Now, let me make sure you understand what I mean by a mixed marriage, okay? There are some Christians out there that just need to get right with God. I'm not talking about black and white marrying each other or brown and white. I'm not talking, that's not the mixing I'm talking about. There's no room for racial prejudice, even in, and it's crazy that that's even around in that. All people, God created everyone. And to be racist in any way goes against the principles of the Word of God. God died for all people, everyone. And so when I say mixed marriage, I'm not talking about races. I'm talking about spiritual and unspiritual. Be very careful, young people in the room, and I don't have a ton of young people in the room this hour. It's happened so many times. Next month will be 10 years of pastoring for me. So many young people will grow up in our church, hear the word of God and the truth. They turn an adult and they come, hey, pastor, I got a boyfriend or I got a girlfriend. Oh, great, wonderful. First question I ask, are they a Christian? Oh, I don't know. Do they go to church? I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet. Young people in the room, be smart. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? I say, well, pastor, why does it matter? And I've had many a uh, young person tell me that. Pastor, why does it matter? It might not matter at first. So let me just give you an example. Let's say dad is a Christian and mom is a Catholic. Say, so is there a difference between the two? There are differences. Some people don't realize, but there are differences. So mom and dad, they get along all right for a while and things go okay, but they have a baby. 
here comes the question. Do you christen them or not? The Christian would say no. The Catholic would say yes. How do you decide what to do? It's just not smart. You have an unbeliever and a believer, and you have kids. How's that supposed to work out? So young people, it really matters. Date a Christian. And may I just say this? Just because someone says they're a Christian doesn't mean they're a Christian either. Be smart. Young people, even adults in the room, you're single, you're ready to mingle. Make sure they're a Christian. Make sure that they know God. And so often, someone will come to me in our church, Pastor, I'm dating. Oh, wonderful. Here we go again. And uh, you're okay, you're dating. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is your, is your, is your significant other going to come to church? Oh, they don't like church. Okay. So they're an underground Christian? You know, COVID, you might get away with it right now, but it's just not smart. Before you give your heart away, Know that they love God, that they're a Christian. You're going to help your home so much more and your kids. Now then, some of you in the room are like, well, pastor, thanks a lot. I'm married to someone who's not a believer, so what am I supposed to do now? I'll tell you in a couple weeks. We'll get to chapter 13. In chapter 13, Israel did not marry like they should. So what some of them did to try and make it right, they divorced. That's how they tried to get right. And then Nehemiah's like, didn't Moses talk about not doing that? They, they tried to write it in the wrong way. And so you say, well, what am I supposed to do? Let's say I'm in a relationship, I'm married, or the, whatever the case may be. How am I supposed to win over my lost spouse? The best way, talked about in 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll read you two verses from there. Verse 2 and 3. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adoring let not be the outward adorning of the plaiting of the hair or the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel, the best thing you can do is let your godly life be an example to them. And I've seen that happen over and over again. And I've seen it be good. And I've seen where a spouse eventually comes to the Lord and they're like, it was my spouse and their witness all these years that helped lead me to this point. And so... Wrongs, you can't, make, you can't keep doing wrongs to make things right. And we'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. And it's a tough subject when you get down to all those things. But young people that aren't married or those that are looking to date, make sure you date a Christian. And just because you go to christianmingle.com doesn't mean they're a Christian. Make sure that they're truly a Christian. And uh, that would be a good thing. Because what you want is you want even those areas and what the children of Israel wanted, what God wanted. God wanted them to honor him even in all those relationships. So do you see how their decision, their vow to submit to the word of God led to that one of separating from the world, which led to number three, which is the Sabbath for God's people. The Sabbath for God's people. After pledging themselves to submitting to the word of God and to live separate lives, the believers renewed the covenant with a third vow. Look at verse number um, 31. And if the people of the land bring wares of any victuals, on the Sabbath day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the Sabbath day and the exaction of every debt. 
say, what does that mean? Well, in Nehemiah's day, it was necessary for God's law and the Sabbath to be clearly understood. When they committed to the covenant in the beginning, remember they broke the covenant? All they're doing is renewing their covenant with God. One thing that should be a great comfort to you, we don't live under the old covenant. We got to renew that covenant and renew that covenant and renew that covenant. We live under the new covenant, which is Jesus and his blood, which was shed for us. And the new covenant washes away our sins and the new covenant can't be broken because it's not based on our merits. It's based on him and what he did for us. That should be a great thrill for you this morning. It was for me. It might be for you as well. But when we talk about the Sabbath for God's people, you're like, well, why was this important? First of all, it was important because it was setting aside a day of honor for God. It was distinct to the children of Israel from other days and given to God so they might worship him without being distracted by other things. Secondly, it was a day of rest. Relaxation, get this, is a vital ingredient in effective living. That's important today as well. God set up the pattern. In Genesis chapter number 2, we know the fact that God rested. In Exodus chapter number 20, where this law was given, it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Say, why did God rest? Because he was tired. God doesn't get tired. Why did he rest? To set an example for us. One day this man challenged another man to an all-day chopping wood contest. A wood chopping contest. I would not participate in this one, but these two guys did. The challenger worked very hard. He stopped only for a brief lunch break. The other man ate a leisurely lunch and took several breaks throughout the day. At the end of the day, the challenger was surprised and annoyed to find that the other guy had chopped a lot more wood than he had. I don't get it. He said, every time I checked, you were taking a rest, yet you chopped more wood than I did, to which the winning woodsman responded, did you notice? I was sharpening my axe when I sat down to rest. Hey, if you're feeling a little dull today in your life, you might need a little siesta. You may need a little rest. It was important for them. Why? Because it set aside to honor God. It was a day of rest. Thirdly, it was a day to help others. And then, fourthly, the Sabbath was a day to declare truth. It was a silent witness to God's supremacy and gave Israel multiple witnessing opportunities. One of the things that you'll notice, the children of Israel not only were supposed to take a Sabbath day rest each week, their Saturday, but on the seventh year, they were supposed to give the land rest every seventh year. So on the seventh year, what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to plant no crops. They were supposed to land, let the land rest. Well, how long were they in the promised land? They were there 490 years before the bondage came. Do you know what they didn't do in those 490 years? They didn't let the land rest. Why were they in bondage 70 years in Babylon? Because 490 divided by 7 is 70. God gave the land rest for 70 years. They were punished for not keeping the Sabbath. That's why they were punished. So as they're hearing the word of God, the law being read, they made a commitment to God, we're going to submit ourselves to God and his word. Man, we're going to do better. We're going to, we're going to separate ourselves from the world. We're going to keep the Sabbath. We're going to follow it like we should. Do you see how when the word of God is preached, that conviction sets in? 
And these were the things they were convicted about. And they made decisions to do these things. And you say, well, pastor, what can I get from the Sabbath day? Take time to rest. You're not invincible. Some people think they are. You're not. I'm not. We're also, you know, sometimes we think, what would, what would this world do without me? Someone else could do what we do. You know, you think about it someday. You know, what would this church do without me? They'll find a new pastor. He'll probably be a better preacher. He'll probably do a better job. But everyone's replaceable. That's why it's important. You take rest. Get rest. Take time. And there are times where you just need extra time. That's why vacations are good. A little break from things. It's a good thing to get some rest. That's a biblical thing. You say, well, pastor, we're not under the Old Testament. We're not under the Old Testament law. But there's still great principles found. And that principle of rest, get some rest. It's an important thing. And then we see number four. We see that they vowed to support their support for God's work. Verse 32 through verse 39, nine times this phrase is used, the house of our God. The people were promising to follow God's priorities by submitting to Him, by separating themselves from the world, by keeping the Sabbath, and by supporting the work of God. Verse 39, look at the last verse there. It says, For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the corn and of the new wine and the oil and the chambers where they are vessels of the sanctuary and the priests that minister and the porters and the singers, and we will not forsake the house of our God. The word forsake means to neglect. We're not going to neglect God's house. We see here that they promised to keep it up, to support it. This passage serves, and many people, one of the areas people don't like to hear pastors talk a lot about is in the area of giving. I don't know, there's something about people don't like to hear pastors talk about giving. And uh, I want to get, this is Brian, this is Brianology. Are you ready for some Brianology? I don't give you Brianology very often, but I'm going to give you one little thought, Brianology here this morning. I think the reason people don't like talking about giving is because those are the ones who don't give. When you give, you don't have a problem hearing about it. When you don't give, you don't like hearing about it. That's Brianology, so it could be false. That could not be a true statement, but I think it's true. Just my thought. They supported God's work. I've heard many people a couple weeks ago, even yesterday, ring through some of the comments on those churches being open. You hear a lot of people like to comment on Facebook in different places. And one of the big things you hear, you know, the whole reason they're, they got to open their church up is the pastor's got to pay his car payment. They just want everybody's money. You know, in all honesty, the 11 weeks we didn't meet in this building, our offerings were way better. I don't know what it was. I mean, offerings were way better. No comparison. If I was concerned about the money, we just wouldn't meet. Why? Because a $700 electric bill this last month, we wouldn't have it. But to keep it cool for you so you can stay awake and hear the preaching, we cool it down in here. It would be easier not to, we could save money doing it another way. Now, don't get me wrong. There are churches out there that do, are out there for money. 
And if you ever are in a church and your pastor's all about money, that's not a church you want to be in. But you also, you got to give a little grace in certain areas too. You watch enough TV. I'm, I am not a Joel Olstein fan. I am not. Maybe you are, maybe I'm not. But I think he gets a bad rap by a lot of people because they say, look at all the money he has. Do you know most of his money he makes doesn't come from the church? It comes from his book sales. So sometimes people are a little hard on him, like he gets all of his money and he's just making rich off the church. He gets most of his money from his book sales. There are some pastors that way, but there are some that they do take advantage. And it should never be that way. A church should be very open about their finances. And if a pastor's in it for what he can get, you don't want him as your pastor. What it comes down to is God provides for his work. You know, there have been a few times in pastoring 10 years. Next month, September 13th, will be our church's 50th anniversary. Plan this big old day and all this. I don't even know what we're going to do as of now. I'm still planning it out. I don't know what we're going to do. We're going to do something. It's 50 years. That's a great thing. A church should be around 50 years and still preaching the gospel. How wonderful that is. But I, yesterday, that funeral I did for the, the lady, um, Robbie Rambo, I saw some of the first church papers for here. They've got some of their finance papers I've ran across. Do you know the church was thrilled three months in of being on this property in 71 that they were 26 cents over budget one week? They were thrilled they had $3.61 in the bank after Sunday. They were thrilled about that. We've never had only $3.61 in our account. In all honesty, our account today sits higher than it sat in the past 10 years because of the last few months. It's crazy to me. God provides for his work. God takes care of things. But may I remind you this morning, God uses his people to supply for his work. All of us, myself included. I want to give you seven quick little thoughts from this passage, and then I'm going to tie it all together, and we'll be on our way. We see, as we look at the seven insights about giving, the first one is this. Their giving, it was a responsible giving. They assumed responsibility. Verse 32 and verse 35, they owned it. They gave what they owned because they saw it as their privilege and their responsibility to do so. The second thing was, not only was it responsible giving, but it was obedient giving. They didn't practice impulse giving, but instead gave out the expression of obedience then of verse 32, it talks about there, um, is it verse 32, verse 34, sorry. It says, as is written in the law. So they were doing it out of obedience. And that's how it should be for a Christian. Third thing was it was systematic. They weren't haphazard about it. They brought a third of silver each year. In verse 34, they cast lots to determine when families would contribute their wood and different things. Verse 35, they gave their first fruits and all of that. And giving today is the same. The Bible tells us in um, 2 Corinthians chapter number, well, 1 Corinthians 16, we're supposed to bring our offerings our, to the Lord on the first day of the week. Systematic, same thing. Um, it was proportionate. I love that. You know, God's not concerned about how much you give. Remember Jesus? There was a widow and another man. And the man gave a big amount. And then the widow gave two mites. Who impressed Jesus? 
the widow because she gave what she had. And that's why you see here that there are many poor people and you see how they could give wood and there was different things. And regardless of income, you could gather wood, you could give something to God. And we see an example of that and how wonderful that is. And then we see it was number five, it was sacrificial. In verse 35, they gave of the first fruits of, off of their trees. Two quotes that are good, and I've, I've never quoted this person before, and this is the first time. Mother Teresa said this, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. Very true statement. And C.S. Lewis put it this way, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. And it was a sacrifice. That's what an offering should be. Number six, it was comprehensive. They were not only bringing their crops and their money, they were also giving of their children, their animals to the Lord, not sacrificing them, but offering them to God for his service in verse 36. And, you know, that's what it comes down to. Does God, you know, does God want your money? He doesn't need it. He owns everything. Everything is his. You say, well, why does God, what does God want then? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know what the Lord wants? He wants your heart. The things we value, we put our money into. Correct? It's true. We do. My daughter, Alyssa, it's her birthday today. The things you treasure, you put money into. On Thursday, I always try for each kid for their birthday, I always try and take them out, just them and me, and we go out to lunch, wherever they want to go, and I'll go take them to the store, let them get a present, and it's just daddy, daughter time, or daddy, son time, whatever the case may be. And so Alyssa, of all the places, she wanted orange chicken from Panda Express. She loves orange chicken from Panda Express. So we sat out, and we just ate it. We went to... Um, J.C. Penney, she wanted a ring, and a purple heart ring. She has expensive taste, just like her mom. And, uh, and, you know, and she's like, Dad, hopefully it won't be too expensive, but it's really what I want. <laughs> she got a purple ring. We're eating. She got dessert as well and a few little outfits. Man, I tell you. And she said in the car, she had this smile on her face, and the smile, I might put a picture of it up later on my Facebook thing, but she said, Dad, one thing I know, that's so great, what do you know? You must really love me. And I do. But I want my God to know that. I want him to look at me and be like, Brian, you must really love me. He deserves that. He does. And their giving was comprehensive in number seven. It was prescribed. They were not only to give, to bring their first, but also a tithe of their crops in verse 37, uh, giving a tenth of their produce, income, all those good things. So you say, well, pastor, what, how can I apply this sermon to my life this morning? This is what it comes down to. You almost think I'm done. He's just like, did you turn off my soundboard on me or something? No? Okay, just making sure I heard the little click on the sound. You, you know, people start closing their Bibles on me or you try to shut the sound down. This voice will keep going a little bit longer this morning. 
And uh, what, how, can, how, what, what can I, how can I apply this sermon to my life? This is what you need to get this morning. I'm not telling you that you need to separate from the world this morning. I'm not telling you that you need to give God the Sabbath. I'm not telling you you need to give more to God. This is the whole point. Submit yourself to this book. And as God speaks to your heart, make decisions based on this book. That's the message this morning. The people heard the word, they believed the word, they submitted to the word, and they let them being committed and submitted to the word change their lives. This book will change your life if you let it. But if you don't submit yourself to it, it's not going to change you. But if you submit to it and as you read it, as you hear it preached, and God starts to work on you, you'll be like, ooh, there's some things I need to clean up and change in my life. Well, that comes as you're submitted to this book. What are you submitted to? Self or God? That's what it comes down to. You must be committed to God. Father, I love you. I thank you for the time we've had this morning in your word, for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for this passage of scripture. And though we look and sometimes we get lost in just all the names and we look through here and we see these different things, Father, I pray that you would just do a work in our lives and help us to be submitted to you and your word.